0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. It is Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. This is another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show on True North. You got to be very careful. Sometimes if you're typing that out, it auto-corrects you to irrelevant. And I, I mean, that may actually be what the show is sometimes, Canada's most irrelevant show. I try to be irreverent and never irrelevant, but uh, sometimes you mix those up and you give your critics lots of ammunition. But uh, regardless, I thank all of you for tuning in as we stand up for your freedom. That is really the theme of the show I think most days but certainly today as we talk about your freedom to protest, your freedom from vaccine mandates and also your freedom to own property which is also under attack by a liberal amendment that will dramatically expand the guns on the list that the government wants to prohibit. This was a an amendment put forward on committee yesterday that has gotten virtually no. I did a, a, a look up this about five minutes ago. And as of when I looked, it had not a single mainstream media story about. And I just saw like one minute before I went on air, Brian Lilly in the Toronto Sun published something, but nothing in the Toronto Star, nothing in the Globe and Mail, not even in the National Post. We're going to talk about it here with Rod Giltaka from the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. And we're talking about a gun ban that eliminates, absolutely eliminates any ability for the government to fall back on. We're not going after hunters and sport shooters. This uh, latest change will effectively ban any semi-automatic gun that shoots anything larger than a 22 round uh, bullet. So we're not talking about uh, a ban here that has anything to do with public safety. It's broad and it's sweeping. So that's coming up in about 15 minutes time. I should say, if you can't tell already, I still have not entirely gotten my voice back. I feel slightly better than yesterday, but I'm still going to to make my way through the show I should have found some like 10 minute long clip that I could play just to uh, give myself a bit of a break but uh, we have a few smaller clips that we'll get to uh, but they are not enough they're not for my benefit they're for your benefit so I do hope you enjoy before we get into all the firearm stuff, I want to talk a little bit about the Public Order Emergency Commission today where we're just like ro- rotating through the cabinet ministers that had portfolios which were adjacent to or directly involved in the Emergencies Act. Yesterday we had Marco Mendicino. Two days ago we had Bill Blair. We also had Dominic LeBlanc yesterday. And today we had three ministers. We were getting spoiled. Uh, three's a crowd, they say. Uh, who do- I've already forgotten. So many of them are so forgettable now. I'm trying to remember who. Uh, the first one was David Lemeny, the Justice Minister who took us most of the day. And then Anita Anand, the Defence Minister, just wrapped up. And I believe right now we have Omar Gabra, the Transportation Minister. So if you'd rather hear Omar Gabra than me, you have options, but I don't think you want to do that. And as with before, we have a couple of folks monitoring that uh, so we can cut in if anything big happens well Omar El-Gabra is on the stand. I will say I'm not optimistic, and I don't say that as a slight against Omar El-Gabra. I say that in general because the ministers that we're seeing you can tell, have been very well prepped for this. The ministers are coming with talking point binders. The ministers are coming with uh, their defenses already planned out. They've had months and months and months in which they've had to defend the Emergencies Act. So now there isn't really any real accountability when they're on the stand. And some of the timeframes here are so condensed. So the way it works is whenever a minister or someone is going to testify, there's a process that goes on behind the scenes of deciding how long they're going to testify. And then it becomes a question of who is going to question them for how long. For example, when Peter slowly took the stand, he was on for two full days. It was a Friday and a Monday. And on the Friday was all his examination And then on Monday was all the cross-examination. So everyone who cross-examined him got a fair bit of time. You look at some other people that have been up there, like Anita Anand. She was on the stand for, I think, maybe two hours. And in that time, there's, you know, maybe 30 to 45 minutes for her to be questioned by commission counsel, uh, 15 minutes to be cross-examined by this party. And some of them get like five minutes with her. And when she gives a long meandering answer, like there was one exchange that Anita Anand had with a lawyer for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I won't play it for you because it already you know, took two minutes off of my life. I don't need you to suffer through that as well. But she was asked, it was like a simple yes or no question. You were out of the country for the first week of the convoy protest, right? And Anita Anand goes, I was in Ukraine. I was in Latvia. I was in Belgium. I was talking to our partners of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we were preparing Canada's strong defense. And, we were, and I was like, oh my goodness, ma'am, this is a Wendy's for crying out loud. It was a yes or no question. Were you in the country? No. Done. Move on but that eats up like you know 80% of the 5 minutes or whatever it was and you know the lawyer was able to ask a few more questions of minister Anand you you start to be very careful about what you ask. And it's like, you know, checking your rhetorical ammo because you only have, you know, three sentences that you can get out. So you choose them very carefully. And so she does this thing and I'm like, so somehow like the Emergencies Act will have lots of information about Canada's strong commitment to supporting our Ukrainian ally, which is very helpful in uh, navigating whether Justin Trudeau was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act for some reason, or maybe not. But that's what happens. So sometimes you have very compressed time frames, And today you were starting to see a little bit of jockeying going on where they're all like swapping time like they're trading cards where, you know, the city of Ottawa will give five minutes to the JCCF and then Freedom Convoy organizers will give five minutes to the JCCF and then JCCF actually gets 15 minutes, which uh, lets Anita and Anne answer like two questions about Ukraine or something. But what was fascinating about all of this is that they're all coming and they can see where the questions are going and they try to preempt where it's going. Like there was one exchange just a little while ago where Anita Anand was being asked a question that was again, a very simple binary question is the national defense act a law in Canada. And she just like, she knew what was being asked of her, so she wouldn't give a straight answer and then, you know, kept trying to outsmart, I think it was Rob Kittredge, who was the lawyer for the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. And uh, it ended up just becoming a a repetitive game of, of 20 questions where you just want the car ride to be over so the game can end. But I do want to talk about some of the more substantive details that came out of this, because as always... Sometimes it's not the testimony that is the most revealing, but the documents. And in particular, the unfiltered raw document exchange that takes place between cabinet ministers. Not in the scripted, talking point-laden question period answers or testimony, but how they actually engage with each other when they're just chatting as friends or colleagues. And the big one today that comes out is this text message exchange between the Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino, and the Justice Minister, David Lametti. And I'll ask that we pull this up on the screen here, because this is actually quite a fascinating, fascinating display. So uh, just for context here, Marco Mendicino is in the gray, and David Lametti is in the blue. So David Lametti says to Marco Mendicino, you need to get the police to move and the CAF if necessary. That's the Canadian Armed Forces. Too many people are being seriously adversely impacted by what is an occupation. I am getting out as soon as I can. People are looking to us slash you for leadership and not stupid people. People like Carney, Kath, my team. Okay, pull this down for a second. So just for context, this is on february 2nd so the convoy has not even been in ottawa for a full week at this time february 2nd so the reason i bring this up is because this exchange is happening the convoy got there earlier like the early days of the convoy were on the friday and uh, it's now been Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, five days. And Marco Mendicino is now getting like a call from Justice Minister David Lamedi, uh, essentially calling on him to bring in the police, to direct police, to send in the military, to do all of this stuff. Uh, but then the absolute best part of this. People are looking to us and you for leadership, not stupid people. People like Mark Carney, and I assume Catherine McKenna is Kath. It might be like Catherine McKenney, the non-binary uh, counselor and uh, former mayoral candidate. Uh, and so it might have been them, but I think it was Catherine McKenna and Mark Carney. So all of a sudden, government policy in this country is being done to pacify Mark Carney and Catherine McKenna. Not the rest of you idiots. You're all stupid people. Your opinions don't matter. We gotta keep Mark Carney and Catherine McKenna happy. Like, this is the sort of stuff that conservatives make fun of the liberals about, but the liberals actually talk like this, that they're taking their marching orders in a way from people like Carney and McKenna and, and my team and David Lemeny's staffers as well. So, not not the dumb people, but only those little smart people here. And they're saying that they take their marching orders from the uh from them apparently so that is i think part of it but if we can throw the text message back up on the screen there uh so that's what uh, david Lemetti says to marco mendicino and then marco says how many tanks are you asking for i just want to ask anita how many we've got on hand and then <laughs> a couple hours later at 10 57 p.m david Lemetti says i reckon one will do You got to like include the inflection for the exclamation mark. I reckon one will do. So David Lametti says one tank is what they think they'll need to go in and break up this group of peaceful protesters five days after they arrived in Ottawa. Now, if you look at that on its face, you think, wow, this seems pretty damaging that they were talking about sending in the military. Well, you just need to get a sense of humor. Here's how David Lametti explains it.
1: Remember, I'm interacting here as a colleague in the Minister of Justice around the Cabinet table. I'm not interacting as Attorney General. Minister Mendicino and I have a close relationship. There's some banter here. There's some humour here. That's a reference to my favourite Christmas movie, uh, the quick, quick, quick part. Um, and so I think, I think we could take the temperature down
0: here. Oh, it's just a little bit of banter, just a little bit of banter, just a little bit of humor. You know, when I banter with my friends, I always talk about sending in the tanks. But the great thing is, when you actually have the power to do it, this banter takes a little bit of a different tone. It's like, uh, just a ma- Like, uh, in fairness to David Lametti, I can't believe I'm about to say this. If I were the CIA director, and I were to have like a casual conversation with friends, I would probably just, like, joke about having people assassinated. Like, that sounds like something that would be fun to do for the first three weeks of your job. Not actually doing it, but I'd be like, oh, you know, you want me to have him whacked or something? I know a guy. But then I'm like, it's different if you actually do it after. So I don't buy the this is just playful joking banter when the government actually came perilously close to sending in the military, and certainly when the government later used wartime powers, which is what the Emergencies Act bestows upon them, to crack down on protesters. So it's not a joke when you actually start living the punchline of it, which is what David Lametti and Marco Mendicino and their colleagues around the cabinet table did in about two weeks from that message being sent. So yeah, I'm all for gallows humor, but you can't just retreat to this, ooh, I'm just kidding, when it sounds like you're seriously considering those policies. And I mean, all these comparisons to Tiananmen Square that have been going rampant on Twitter today, I kind of get those. I absolutely get those because the government was using that kind of rhetoric. And remember when there were those leaked uh, WhatsApp messages from RCMP officers talking about how, oh, don't, don't arrest them all, we want to get in and get our overtime, and oh, you know, wait till they hear our jackboots on the ground, and oh, you know, I love how you trampled that Indigenous lady, maybe we can practice that maneuver when we get back to camp, or I'm paraphrasing, but that was the sentiment in those messages that were leaked. So I get when you have a high stress, tense job and you're in a tense situation, you crack jokes about things. But these don't actually sound like jokes when you see how the government responded. And that is so critical. And I will say, there was a remarkable bit of self-awareness that came from one of the exchanges that we saw in the evidence here. Now, this is a text message exchange about the Emergencies Act one day before the Emergencies Act was invoked, and it's between Greg Fergus, who's a backbench Liberal MP, and David Lametti. Why don't you take a look at this? So what e is being said here, that is uh, Greg Fergus on the left and he, in the gray, and he's referring to the caucus call that the Liberals just had. Here's the consensus. Use the Emergencies Act, close down Coventry and baseline bases of operations, put a solid RCMP or CAF spokesman, ooh, Justin Trudeau would not approve of the use of the word spokesman. Anyway, RCMP or CAF spokesman before the press, since we politicians have pissed away our credibility. Now, after that, I will just say, uh, David Lametti has a bit of self-awareness as well. No solid RCMP spokesperson. So uh, clearly a belief on his part that uh, Brenda Lucky was not uh, earning her poutines, if you will. Uh, But Greg Fergus says, we politicians have pissed away our credibility. So there was an understanding by February 13th, that a, by one Liberal member of Parliament anyway, that the Liberals could not capably sell the Emergencies Act and their response to protesters, to the protests in Ottawa, that they had no credibility and that they were responsible for it. And I think this was actually a remarkable bit of self-awareness. Now, Greg Fergus has said a lot of things with which I disagree. He was uh, one of the ones that went up there and made these sweeping accusations of racism in the convoy protest. And obviously, it sounds like there was consensus. The Liberal Caucus was on board with use of the Emergencies Act, but a lot of them we know were kind of coerced into it. There were people that raised some frustrations like Nathaniel Erskine-Smith and Joel Lightbound, and they only went along with it because they had to, thanks to Justin Trudeau's declaration that this was going to be a confidence vote, and ergo one that he needed to whip. But all of this is right now part of a liberal strategy, it seems like, that was moving towards it. David Lametti was talking about the Emergencies Act going back to February 3rd. So the convoy hadn't even been there a week and he was already talking about Emergencies Act powers. And that's why I actually don't think it was just in jest when he talks about sending in a tank. Which, by the way, (laughs) reminded me of this like 16-year-old fear-mongering campaign ad that the Liberals used against Stephen Harper in the 2006 election. It's a famous one, but take a look.
2: Stephen Harper actually announced he wants to increase military presence in our cities. Canadian cities. Soldiers with guns. In our cities. In Canada. We did not make this up. Choose your Canada.
0: No, you weren't making it up. Except you are the ones doing it. Tanks in our streets, in our cities. We are not making this up. Well, no, you're not. You're doing it. You're you're actually doing it or talking about doing it. So my goodness, this is a fascinating, fascinating display. Now, I think what's interesting here is that the government has positioned itself as being incredibly transparent about all of this. But yesterday, as we saw, they were fighting tooth and nail to maintain redactions of documents that they've published. They're not entirely waiving cabinet confidence and they're still holding firm on solicitor-client privilege. And I want to play this clip from David Lametti, who is both the Justice Minister and the Attorney General, which means he is the Government of Canada's lawyer. And the government's lawyer... Actually, argued, sorry, the lawyer representing the government in the committee hearing, so not Lametti, uh, preemptively asserted solicitor-client privilege to prevent David Lametti from speaking about things that involved his advice to the government that was legal advice. Take a look.
2: Thank you. Good morning, Commissioner. It's Andrea Gonzalez, counsel for the Government of Canada. Um, the next witness will be uh, Minister of Justice David Lametti. In addition to being Minister of Justice, of course, um, Minister of Just, uh, the Minister is the Attorney General of Canada, the lawyer to the Government of Canada. And I wanted to put on the record that the Government of Canada continues to assert and maintain uh, all of its claims of solicitor, client privilege, and respect of all legal advice and opinions. Minister Lametti's attendance here uh, as a witness is not a waiver of any claims of privilege by the Government of Canada, which he has an obligation to protect. We will be objecting to, and Minister Lametti will be refusing to answer all questions that would delve into areas of solicitor-client privilege, so I just wanted to put that on the record at the front end, um, and hopefully examinations um, can be appropriately tailored to keep the objections to a minimum.
1: Well, it will be an interesting maneuver uh, throughout the testimony, but I'm sure everyone will be on their guard. So uh, with that, perhaps we can swear the witness.
0: Now, at the end of uh, Minister Lametti's testimony, the commissioner was very measured about it, but he was raising issues about how all of a sudden this privilege is blocking what's become a, a pretty significant part of this uh, this inquiry which is what legal advice the government had on the emergency act now i am not a lawyer which is probably a very good thing for would be clients of mine but the thing that's interesting about this is that i realize solicitor client privilege is sacrosanct it's very important and you know even the government is entitled to solicitor client privilege but we're talking about legislation that is under investigation right now. And we're talking about legislation where the government's legal advice is very important to what information the government had about the applicability of the Emergencies Act. Because remember if you do a plain text reading of the Emergencies Act, it says that a threat to the security of Canada has a definition that is the def- the one set out in the CSIS Act. And if you read the CSIS Act, you don't see anything there supporting the government's interpretation that that existed in Canada. And the government has now said, and we've heard from a couple of witnesses, that, well, there's sort of a broader definition than just the CSIS Act, but nowhere in the legislation does it say that. So if the government went to its lawyer, David Lametti, and said, "Uh, counselor, tell us, where is our legal basis for this? I think his advice is entirely material. And it's despicable that this government claims to be transparent. They're like, oh, we're so transparent, we're even sharing joking text messages between ministers but they're not sharing the stuff that actually matters, the stuff that gets to the core of why the government thought it could pull one over on Canadians, suspend their civil liberties, all the while claiming they were not. And this was another takeaway today from David Lametti's testimony that infuriated me because the government's line about this has been that, oh, the Emergencies Act is charter compliant. Yes, it says right in there, it's charter compliant. It can say whatever it wants. It can say that the sky is purple. That doesn't mean it's true because we know that police went in and removed protesters that were on sidewalks, that were behaving peacefully, that didn't have trucks and threatened them with arrest if they did not leave. Lametti was questioned about that. Watch.
2: When Minister Mendicino was here yesterday, he, he said that he, he believed that, uh, although the, uh, he, he would characterize, I think, it the same way that the protest was illegal, that there were thousands of people who were aiming to protest lawfully, and thousands of people who were. So not people who were blocking trucks, people who, who were simply on the streets, on their feet, Protesting peacefully.
1: Yeah, I grant you that possibility.
2: Okay, um, and the orders that were put in place under the Emergencies Act um, required those people to to leave the area. That's as correct. Well. Thank you.
1: They always had the option to go somewhere else to protest legally. When the blockade was cleared, people moved down the street, Wellington Street in Ottawa, towards Booth, and they protested on the side of the road, not impeding traffic, not impeding pedestrians. Manifesting their their political beliefs, waving signs, that was completely legal. Throughout all of this, those people had an option to move to protest legally, and they didn't.
0: Okay, so... You had a right to protest. You just couldn't protest there. So yeah, this is actually a great strategy. The government can just say, no, 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 you're not allowed to protest on Wellington Street. But if you want to go up to like Baffin Island and protest, you are free to do so. And yeah, no, you can protest uh, down the road. Keep going. Yeah, no, keep keep going. I'll, I'll tell you when you get there. No, 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 keep, yeah, ju- keep keep going. If I can still see you, you're too close. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, more, more, more. Just Just go so far away, we can't see you. That is not defending the right of lawful assembly. So Minister Lametti's point here is that, oh, anyone could keep protesting. They just had to move. Well, that doesn't deal with the question that, first off, government never communicated to that. Police never communicated that, which is why there were stories of folks being threatened with arrest or actually arrested who had no vehicles that were just walking down Albert Street. And this was something that, even if the government intended it, which I don't believe it did, was not filtering down to the situation on the ground. So we are going to talk about this more in future shows. But again, the man does not live on Public Order Emergency Commission alone. I want to talk about this story, which has not gotten a lot of coverage. In fact, as of last look, had no coverage in the mainstream media. And that is the amendment put forward by the Liberals in Committee To Bill C-21, this is the firearms regulation bill that's coming down the pipeline. And this amendment, I just want to read directly from the uh, amendments that were put forward before committee. Changes the definition or adds to the definition of a prohibited firearm the following. A firearm that is a rifle or shotgun that is capable of discharging centerfire ammunition in a semi-automatic manner and that is designed to accept a detachable cartridge magazine with a capacity greater than five cartridges of the type for which the firearm was originally des- designed. Now, if you're a gun owner, you're seething right now. If you're not a gun owner, you're like, what the hell did he just say? It, it is a firearm that has a-, a round of ammunition that's basically anything other than a, a 22, which is a-, a little tiny cartridge, and has a magazine that takes more than five rounds of ammunition. Let's talk about why this matters. Rod Giltaka is here, head of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, good to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So what, what types of guns are we talking about here that are not prohibited already by the Liberals that would be caught by this amendment?
3: Well, for all intents and purposes, it's uh, center fire, semi-automatic rifles and shotguns that can take a detachable magazine. So there's some nuance there when you talked about a magazine that could, that was, uh, or a firearm that was originally designed to take a magazine that could uh, hold more than five rounds. There's, there's a lot of nuance there, but basically any magazine-fed firearm could take a, a magazine that could hold more than the prescribed number of rounds if you get a hold of it. And who knows what it was designed for in the first place. It was just magazine fed. So I guess for purposes of our discussion, all, se- all semi, uh, semi-automatic semi rifles and shotguns that are center fire that accept removable magazines, and that's probably around 2 million firearms that are now uh, going to be prohibited if that amendment is passed into the bill and the bill is passed through the Senate and uh, receives royal assent.
0: One of the things that I I find interesting about this is that there's been a lot in Canada of haggling over magazine limits, and and oftentimes on firearms, there's a a pin in a magazine, so it could theoretically take more rounds, but uh, government regulation has, has capped it at five rounds. Would a magazine that is pinned to five rounds, but could theoretically, if you were to illegally remove that pin, take more, would that satisfy this in your view?
3: Well, the, the way that it's worded is quite ambiguous, and those are the kinds of laws that the government <laughs> seems to love. They don't like, you know, straightforward stuff. Um, but the way that it's written, it's, it's like, uh, I guess we'll use the most infamous rifle ever, which is the AR-15, which is just, just another semi-automatic rifle, just like any other. It was designed originally to have a 30-round magazine. But, of course, in Canada, we can't have those. It's apparently too dangerous. So we have a, a pin inserted, a rivet, to to uh limit it to five rounds but that firearm was originally designed to hold a 30 round to use a 30 round magazine and so thus it would now be prohibited if if the original design had some stubby little five round magazine it would apparently be okay so again more completely nonsensical ridiculous rules designed for one reason it's just to punish people that are unlikely to vote for the liberals
0: yeah, and, and, you know, this abandons, in my view, the pretense. I mean, it was long gone, I'm sure you and I could agree, but really abandons the pretense that nothing that the Liberals are doing targets sport shooters and firearms owners that are there that own guns for hunting, which has always been their line. Because, you know, Justin Trudeau's uh, explanation, no one needs an AR-15 to take down a deer. Okay, well, when they're talking about shotguns and other semi-automatic centerfire rifles that are used for hunting, people, I mean who don't know guns don't realize that they're just blatantly misinforming people
3: yeah it's 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 uh it, it's all gaslighting um yeah long gone are all the promises that they they're not going to you know uh, affect hunters or sports shooters or anyone else they're 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 coming for for everything so um you know i have a few firearms of my own and i'm not unique in that um, if i look through my gun cabinet i'm probably going to have a couple of guns left after all this is, uh, after all the dust has settled. So they're coming after basically everything other than lever actions. Um, there, there may be some pump action shotguns that are, that will be prohibited too, which is a dangerous precedent. So all of those will end up going, uh, you may have single shot, like break action, you know, shotguns left and some bolt action rifles. And and for some people that's enough. Um, for most people there isn't, but there's always a the question, how do you justify doing this? Like, why are you doing this to all these people? And they keep saying public safety. And of course, it's, you know, they don't offer any proof of that. Um, so, yeah, just the gaslighting continues. And uh, why they're doing this, it's, it's anyone's guess.
0: Well, and I think it's important to not look at C-21 in isolation either. And I, I think for that, we go back to 2020 and that uh, initial prohibition of, of 1,500 types of, uh, of mostly semi-automatic rifles. And then you follow that with their efforts to uh, ban handguns. And then you follow that with uh, this latest amendment in C-21. And, and you are right that at a certain point, they're attacking in very rapid succession uh, it, almost every type of firearm, except for uh, like at the end of it, it's going to be you can have a, a Revolutionary War musket and that'll be it. And then that'll go.
3: Well, it's, uh, apparently they're going to include the SKS in this and some rimfire rifles as well just because they look scary uh this is this is
0: they're you know it's funny because even one of those like tactical looking 22s which i think most gun owners think are kind of ridiculous but but those those 22s that look scary they could be prohibited in your view
3: well yeah and and, i mean i think the the salient point here is everything that the liberal government says and let's not forget the culpability of the ndp and um, and the Bloc Québécois, because they're supporting this too, everything they say to you is a lie. it, it is it is a lie, top to bottom. Um, and you know, first at first it's like, oh, it's only these guns, just these dangerous assault weapons. Are they assault weapons? No, but we have we're going to call them assault style, so that's close enough. So they had that whole thing. We're going to buy them back. It's like, no, nope, we're not going to buy them back. It's almost three years later, nothing's nothing's forthcoming. They have nothing. Then it's like, well, handguns, oh, we're not, and then, I, of course, I went to committee on Bill C-21, and I have the NDP MP, um, Alistair McGregor, say, well, nobody's really banning your handguns, right? It's a freeze, let's, let's, uh, let's be clear, and I'm like, what do you mean? If I, <laughs> I have handguns, so if I die, the RCMP are going to come to the house, they're going to take them from my grieving window and my kids that are licensed, and they're going to take them without any compensation and destroy them, and they'll take them by force. They'll be like, well, either you give them up or you go to jail. So, But it's not a ban. Don't call it a ban. So I think you were just talking about the the uh, the Emergencies Act inquiry and how they keep saying these things even though they're demonstrably untrue. And I mean, this is, this, this is a government... The, these are a group of people I, I don't think that we've ever seen before. Not at this level.
0: No, and, and you and I have talked about this in the past and, and you were uh, very graciously a, a big supporter of and, and star in the documentary I did about this uh, a, a year and a half back. Uh, you know, in, in the, the public education about guns has always been, I think, very poor. And it's not for, for lack of effort on the part of gun owners. It's that gun owners are a very small minority, relatively speaking, of, of the Canadian population. And, and you have a lot of urbanites in this country that have never encountered a gun and, to their knowledge, have probably never met a gun owner that really buy into the narrative that they're fed by the government and, and fed by a lot of the mainstream media in this country. And when stuff like this happens, it's terrible that if a conservative leader puts forward a very sensible opposition to this, they get cast into that. Oh, he wants everyone walking around, you know, with an AR 15 on the streets. It's like, no, that's not what's being debated here.
3: Yeah. They want to make assault weapons legal again. And I mean, it's such a misleading, it's such a misleading statement on its face because assault weapons have been banned since 1977. So they'd actually have to clarify it and say assault style weapons legal again. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's the reason why it's so effective is it's a fear-based narrative, right? It's, they, they, they are always, and when I say, I mean the liberals, again, with the NDP right alongside them and the Bloc Québécois, they're marching the public using the government's resources, educational resources and media resources, Marching them along, saying there's a direct connection between somebody like me that has a firearms license, that gets background checked every day, that has legal storage, that could have my home searched to make sure I'm storing my firearms properly, whose handguns are registered, whose AR-15s were registered, can only shoot those at an approved shooting rate, all that stuff. They're always trying to draw a line between people like me and the shootings that they see in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver. Their entire narrative is hung on that. So it's, it's incredibly deceptive, but it is very effective because their side of the story can be told with taglines like, more guns equal more death. And it's like, well, for me, to, for me to debunk that, it takes about 10 sentences. And you'll never get that on a mainstream legacy media format. So it's very effective that way. And that's what we're up against. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a difficult fight, but we're not going to just lay down and let them take them
0: you mentioned the sks now just for for people that don't know the sks they're mass-produced soviet you often rifles that uh, you could just buy for dirt cheap because they're surplus i mean i think a lot of people get them for like under 200 bucks back in the day maybe they're a little bit more now uh they're semi-automatic they're not particularly accurate they're dirty but they're fun to shoot they're fun they look cool Uh, and and there are i don't know if there's an exact number but i would assume there have to be tens of thousands of these in canada right now correct about a million of them. A million SKSs. And yeah. and they're they're non-restricted, which means mm-hmm. that if you have a license, you buy one. It's not registered to you. Something like this, I, I feel is just logistically impossible to prohibit because you, you can't enforce it when you don't know where these things are. And so if the law-abiding, dutiful, diligent citizens will hand theirs back into the government and the people that don't have regard for the law will still have them.
3: Well, there's there's a problem occurring here, Andrew. And the problem is is that laws have to be reasonable and they have to be justified. When the government says we're going to use the the capacity, you know, to to uh, to um, project force that you've paid for, it has to be justified. So what they're saying is we're going to use that force on you. Doesn't matter. This is part of our political agenda. And what happens is reasonable, law-abiding people are just like, well, wait a minute. This isn't fair. This is wrong. I'm actually. You're extracting money and taxes from me in order to be able to do this to me. I'm going to consider noncompliance. And the minute that you start looking at a scenario that, like right now, what the government's doing, and you're like a reasonable person, might start considering noncompliance. Like that is that is creating cracks. That's a violation of the, of the social contract, is what they're doing right now. But it's creating cracks in 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 our society, and that's that's bad. So. You know, while this seems to be a big joke to Liberal MPs and Liberal supporters, while well, they think this is funny, doing this to, well, probably a, a roughly a million Canadians are licensed to own these firearms. Well, I guess 2.2 I guess million, but a million Canadians probably own these firearms. They seem to think this is funny, but it's not funny. It's very corrosive to our society. It's destroying the relationship, and an important one at that, between uh, productive citizens and the government, and productive citizens, and law enforcement, because somebody's going to come looking for those guns, and it's not going to be Justin Trudeau. He'll be hiding in the cottage, right? Just like he did during COVID. That's, that's very corrosive to our society. So you got to really think about when you want to use government force and, and laws um, and make sure that's justified. So if you say it's for public safety, it has to be, and you have to prove that, or you're just, you're just destroying the social fabric of our country. And I think, I think people forget that in this hyper-partisan time.
0: Up until a couple of months ago, I, I thought that the main ways you could combat this was uh, the legal route, which I know the CCFR has, has taken and is taking about that order in council back in, in 2020, the political route, getting political leaders to, to enact change, and, and to, to a lesser extent, the public education route, which you, know, you hope then people will call on their politicians. But there's a new avenue that opened up in the last couple of months, which I think is a fascinating one, and that is provinces declaring that they will not enforce these laws. Alberta was the first, and then there was Manitoba, and then there was New Brunswick and Saskatchewan. So you've got four provinces here. I believe Yukon... I can't remember there was a, there was a nuance yep. with Yukon, but you've still got four provinces there that have said they do not believe this is an adequate use of police resources, And the federal government has really had to admit that it has no way of forcing them to enforce this law. So is that something you're optimistic about uh, really driving in the future with other provinces?
3: Well, Alberta and Saskatchewan have both already uh, put out statements that they are condemning this uh, this new amendment that was brought through in bill c twenty one or that was presented, it hasn't passed. They have the votes to pass it because, of course, the Bloc and the NDP will support them. Um, but So there's a, there are some green shoots there as well. But I think the fact, going back to what you said in the beginning of, of your question, the fact that four provinces in a territory have said, you know what, we're not even going to cooperate with you, that should be another indication to the federal government. They should be like, well, wait, wait a minute, maybe we should rethink what we're doing. Maybe what we're doing isn't right if we're actually having provinces rebelling against us so but this is again right this is not this is not your your father or your grandfather's liberal party this is an entirely alien group of people um, that i think are very dangerous for the country and they these these kinds of people they wouldn't think twice about what they're doing they're like well i guess we got to put i guess we got to push harder anyway we have to we have to people have to bend the knee to us and and normally as you and i have known each other for a while right like i don't usually like to use language like this but it's getting to the point where it's like you know, I I find myself almost in the past defending the government, and saying, "Well, maybe they just know not what they do." But man, this is just getting really crazy.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and a lot of police officers too that I've spoken to are, are themselves civilian gun owners, and uh, you know, some of them for very practical reasons because you know they don't get enough range time as police, so they train on their own and and are enthusiasts, and and they have no interest in in enforcing these laws, and obviously they they will ultimately if that's the direction but I'm hopeful that more provinces will step up because again we we, clearly the federal government is entrenched in this position and I I don't think Justin Trudeau or Bill Blair or Marco Minicino are going to wake up one day and say you know what maybe the law-abiding gun owners aren't the problem but I I, if they if they're finding a resistance from the uh, police uh, that are supposed to uphold this and by that I mean the provinces that uh, are responsible for allocating those police resources they'll have a law with no enforcement and I think they'll have to kind of retreat with their tails between their legs. Legs. I don't know. I don't, I, again, I, I take no pleasure in, you know,
3: being in the position right now where I'm like, I wouldn't put anything past them. I mean, we just heard that they were, they were considering uh, using, a, you know, bringing tanks in to clear protesters, yeah. but right? it was like, not
0: a semi-automatic tank. It was fine.
3: Yeah. It was a manually operated tank. Yeah. It was a bolt action um, tank. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like it's just, it's such a strange time. I, and I, 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 I just will, I've been wrong as often as I've been right about you know how far they'll go i don't think i don't think we can put anything past them but as an organization we're going to continue to fight against them we're going to continue to try to get our message out to canadians right that's really important uh, i'm hoping that canadians mainstream middle of the road centrist canadians which most of us used to be right in the days before the days before we were labeled extremist i'm hoping most people will come to their senses and go these are not liberals uh, these, these, this is a very dangerous group of people and they shouldn't be anywhere near power and they're all going to show up and bring their friends and family in the next election and get rid of these people once and for all. That's what I'm hoping.
0: I, I know the, the CCFR has a lot of business members. Just anecdotally, have you heard uh, any, about any upticks in sales of semi-automatics today? And I asked that because I know every other time the Liberals have tried to ban something, they, they become impossible to get because there's just a run on them.
3: <laughs> well, it's see, that's a, that puts... I mean, there probably would be. I haven't. I haven't heard anything. It's only been a day, um, yeah. but yeah, a lot of people might run out and buy those uh, buy those guns that uh, that may or may not be on the list, but certainly would fit the uh, the description of centerfire semi-automatic with a detachable magazine. Um, but at the same time, the liberals um, have uh, instituted a backdoor gun registry, uh, which of course they promised not to do, but they've they've done it. So the government will know where all of those guns are, and they will just. I guess in theory, send people to come and take those guns away if uh, people don't um, give them up uh, voluntarily. So I don't know. Uh, that's that's going to temper sales quite a bit. Um, but uh, one one interesting point of this whole thing, if you watch the the meeting at uh, on in, at uh, committee for Bill C seventy uh, Bill C twenty one yesterday, uh, the liberals did not include a buyback for any of these firearms. So they're just. Their intent, as it stands today, is just to prohibit them all, and that's it. You get nothing.
0: Wow, just uh, licensing themselves to do an all-out confiscation—terrible stuff. Uh, we'll certainly follow this. Uh, Rod Giltaka from the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights—always a pleasure—and keep up the fight, sir. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Rod. I yeah, I, I mean, when I looked at that, and I was like, in my looking at my gun cabinet, and I'm like, oh man, this is gonna. I'm going to need a smaller cabinet at the end of this because they're going after basically everything in it. And I don't even have one of those like revolutionary war muskets, which at a certain point will be the only thing you're allowed to. And heck of a lot more risky to fire a musket than your average semi-automatic rifle. But uh, maybe we need to do like a true north range day or something. That would be fun good to bring everyone out to the gun range the liberals would love that Uh, that does it for us for today we will be back next week with more of the andrew lawton show friday with fake news friday and all the public order emergency commission coverage you love and know and crave is going to be at tnc.news so do check that out Uh, but i'll bid you adieu for now this is canada's most irreverent talk show the andrew lawton show on true north thank you god bless and good day to you all thanks for listening
1: to the andrew lawton show